I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis, and I have one of my favorite guests back in the studio, virtually, of course, Dr. Leslie Cook. Leslie, thank you for being here. It is always a pleasure. I'm excited every time I'm here. I've recently started doing this thing where I actually meet with people before a podcast recording for 15 minutes and come up with like an outline of things we can talk about. And I'm like, this is so great. And not only did I not do that with you, I haven't even told you what the topic is today. I said, do you want to do another podcast? And you were like, yeah. This is my wheelhouse. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, I just, what I learned was not everybody likes that or can do that. And so I went through a couple of interviews where I was like, oh, I need to start planning things so that I can help like guide the, Leslie, I want to talk about rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Yeah. Don't we all? And here's my like, whatever that word is that you say, but the disclaimer. I 100% am like totally down for any term that someone identifies with, that describes their experience, that makes sense of their experience for them, and helps them navigate in a world where they can ask for what they need and create accommodations in their life and learn and grow and have self-compassion for themselves. And like, I'm so down for that. Like, I'm never one of those people that, like, wants to take terms away from people or, like, that's not the right to – like, who cares? You like it? You got it. It's fine. I'm disclaimering that only because I have so many questions about this term. And sometimes in order for me to understand something, I go to this, like, devil's advocate place of, like, these are, like, the objections that come up in me. And I'm not voicing them because I think they're necessarily right, but because – I have to get these answered for me to fully feel like I understand something. Yeah, absolutely. I was just talking to another mental health clinician about how like in the evolution of social media mental health professionals, I did start as the person that was like, that's not the right term. Don't use it that way. And there's some merit to that in some cases. But one of the things I've learned and I needed to learn by so much exposure to the consumers of our services and our content is that disclaimer is that number one, people only create and communities only create words when there's a vacuum. So there's nothing here that describes what I'm trying to say. And so everyone is just dismissing it. And I think that term, the biggest thing it did is it encapsulated quickly something that we could all go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've had that. Like, that's a real experience. Yeah, it's a real thing. And you share it. It's something that brings people together into more understanding of each other. And I think it's less pathologizing than just don't be so sensitive. So I share that disclaimer, but you know, semicolon, I also have concerns <laughs> with some of the terms that were adopted. And I think it's because of the fact that 
things grow and change. And so the original intent of that word, I wonder if we have strayed away from that. Interesting that you brought that up. So people ask me sometimes if I struggle with rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And for anyone that's listening, that's like, what the hell is that? It's a painful experience that you have when you are rejected or you perceive you're being rejected. So it often comes up with criticism, even like healthy, kind criticism. And it's the idea that like, I basically like cannot tolerate anything that feels as though I've done something wrong, or I'm being rejected. And I'm extremely sensitive to basically interpreting all criticism, critique, pushback, mistake, as being rejected, and that my nervous system sort of has this really overblown response to that, where I feel panicky, I feel like I'm in pain, I feel like I'm drowning, I feel all these things. So that's the colloquial, like, layman's understanding of that. So people ask, and it's talked about a lot as a something that happens in people with ADHD. It's not officially a part of the diagnosis. It's not a formal clinical term. It's not in the DSM. And to my knowledge, I have not seen any research on it. Have you? Not necessarily. And I think, again, social media is moving so much faster than our science can catch up. It takes years to like select a group and then do some testing. And so I haven't seen specific, you know, outcome research of what is this, but I have seen articles and periodicals and shared experience publications that talk about the fact that this does seem to be something that is relatively unique as an experience specifically for ADHD found in every person to some extent, but overrepresented for the ADHD crowd. But I think it's unclear where it comes from or how we would encapsulate it. So I actually looked up like an article on it. And this is from like the Attitude magazine, which is like the ADHD publication that comes out. And it says, what is rejection sensitivity dysphoria? And it goes on to say like, it's not a formal diagnosis. It's just like a common under-researched symptom of ADHD. We don't actually know if it is or not, but it is experientially very common. Noticeably, the first thing they say is RSD is not thought to be caused by trauma. And this is one of the hardest things is like, if you ask me, do you have rejection sensitivity dysphoria? And then you say, it's what I just described. Like, sometimes you'll be like, yeah, it's like, man, really being impacted by the feeling of rejection. And so there's a part of me that's like, is that not just having your feelings hurt? Like, isn't that everybody? Like, nobody likes to be rejected. But I will say that most of my childhood, I do feel like I had an extra sensitivity to feeling worthless. Like, I struggled with feeling worthless a lot. And so getting rejected felt more painful to me than it seemed like it felt to others. And the only reason that I know that is because through being institutionalized and having to go through a lot of like confrontational therapy that like forced me to grow some ego strength and then also doing some like having some own like growth around some spirituality stuff. There was literally this weird day and I won't go into it because it's a very weird woo-woo story. But let's just say that I had a run-in with this woman at my work that bullied me and like it tore me up on the inside. Like I would literally react to that day in the middle of an all-staff meeting by screaming at her because she like made a face at me that was kind of like a meant to make me feel stupid and like ran out of the room and then cried and then went to my car and was trying to drive home and then a pullover. And anyways, I at that time was like, 
looking into some of my own like spiritual texts, right? And I like read this thing and it was really meant something to me. And I felt this like physical shift in my chest. And then all of a sudden it got lighter. And it was such a weird sensation that I, I described to my friends as it feel it felt like something let go of me and left me. And I had this shift where from then on, and I mean, I also was getting so much therapy. So I, I feel like it was almost this culmination of like a lot of therapy work, a lot of spiritual work, a lot of sort of like meaningful things for me, where when I would get rejected or get criticized, it still hurt. It still didn't feel good. But what was gone was this like darkness that would like slither up the back of my throat and whisper in my ear, see, I told you you were a piece of shit. I told you no one was going to love you. Like that previous to that like day, that was my experience of rejection. It was intolerable. It was painful. It was more painful than just this hurts, right? Now, I had never heard the term rejection sensitivity dysphoria, right? And I think the differentiating factor that when you hear people talk about it is they say, one, it is not thought to be trauma. I would have told you that reaction in me was trauma. And I know what it's trauma from. It's trauma from some family of origin shit. So I wouldn't have ever said that because the specifically they say RSD is a nervous system difference that is not related to trauma. Now, I think I had a nervous system difference related to trauma, and then I got a bunch of therapy and also had like this bizarre spiritual experience, and now I don't feel that anymore. So personally, it's hard for me to contextualize that because when you describe it, yes, I remember feeling that way, but then when you needle down on it's not trauma, it's a nervous system difference, it's – I'm like, oh, well, how would we even know? Like in what world does somebody with ADHD not have traumatic experience by the time they're an adult? And I think that is – the core of where I think we're still kind of trying to develop a way to conceptualize this thing that we're calling RSD and we're not quite there. And I think to piggyback on that, I agree and disagree and love how they described it and absolutely hate it at the same time. So we know that ADHD comes with this list of dysregulations and it's not just, as we all know, well, as we all in the club know, it's not just our attention and focus. It's also our ability to control upregulating our emotions, sometimes getting excited or motivated, sometimes downregulating. It's hard to inhibit our impulses. And so one of the most famous pieces of research that gets quoted a lot is kids with ADHD hear their name called in a negative way by, I think it's age 18, like 20,000 times. The, it's a huge number more than other kids. And so we could look at it through one lens and say, well, that's not necessarily trauma. That's just the interaction of a nervous system that has trouble with this and the environment. However, that's also another way to look at trauma is that it's the interaction. of. So I think it's almost a non sequitur. Like, is it due to trauma? Is it not? That almost doesn't matter. I think, I think what really matters is to look at all of these kids, especially these undiagnosed kids who are growing up hearing sit down, stop it, go away, you're too much, you're not enough. If you could just focus, that builds this sense that of impending doom, that every side glance, every missed text is about rejection is on the horizon. And I don't love the description, but I love the description of it climbing up your throat. I immediately identify with that experience. I even had one experience as a teenager where a friend that I had had since kindergarten, I guess I was probably being too much, 
and too loud getting on the bus. And she turned around and said, don't you get it? We don't really like when you hang out with us. And that was my up the throat realizing like, oh, it's me. They don't want me. And that was a formative experience too. Now, would that have happened had I been dysregulated less? Maybe not. But those things, I think, you know, are part of the same phenomenon. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Yeah, there is this interesting like hypervigilance to rejection that you develop because of that. And that's the thing that I was trying to express at the beginning. Like, I'm not saying that the experience that we're all describing when someone says rejection sensitivity dysphoria is like not real. Like, I believe it is. I'm more interested in like when you get down to this question of is it an environmental, like, is it an experience that is just describing something we already knew about ADHD, the different factors of, you know, we knew these symptoms. So this symptom intertwining with this environment, creating this kind of 
you know, traumatic experience causes this experience versus people who will talk about it as a symptom. Like, no, no, out of the womb, something with your nervous system and your brain wiring, like even if you never had a negative experience, like is overly sensitive to rejection because that was my other thing was like when I read, I was like, is that not just emotional dysregulation? I think you could phrase it that way. You could look at it as functionally speaking, this is an emotional dysregulation that happens faster and more intensely for those of us with this neurotype, with this neurological difference. I think you could also say maybe for most ADHD people, it's so common of an experience that it might as well be a symptom. I think the danger in that for me, and this is like a bee in my bonnet as a clinician for years, is that when we start believing that this thing, I'm holding up a little AirPods case, that this thing, RSD, is like inside of me, like it's part of me, then it's always going to be here. And there's a tendency to think then when it happens, oh, it's RSD. Yeah, that happens. Versus if it's something that that I'm holding, that I can look at, that I can examine, there might be a way for me to figure out how to maybe put it down a little more, how to learn, how to get that cognitive thinking part of our brain online to say, is this really rejection? And you know this because we've talked you know, off of the online space, but I have friends where I try to actively practice, here's what I'm feeling. Am I literally making this up? And I have some amazing friends that will say, yes, you are making that up. That is your brain has created that story. That's not what's happening. And that has decreased that feeling of fear of rejection by probably 80%. Yeah, I think when I hear people talk about it as an innate thing, and to your metaphor, I think it's when we try to put it in the same category as like sensory sensitivity and autism. Like that's in your brain. You came out the womb with that. Like, and not every autistic person has the same sensory or even any sensory sensitivities, but it's like that is a sensory sensitivity that has to do with the wiring of your brain. There's no like cognitive restructuring that you could do to make yourself not be icked or in pain over that sensory thing. Like it is not a social construct. It is not an interaction between some other autistic symptom and your environment. Like it is just straight up a neurological response to something that would happen in a vacuum. And I see a lot of people talk about RSD moving in that direction as is like, no, this is an innate symptom separate from other symptoms that would happen even in a vacuum. And that's the one where I'm always like, hmm, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure if it is. Maybe it is. But if it's not and we put it there, will we be doing ourselves a disservice? And that's, I think, what you were saying is like, well, here it is. You know, deal with it. It just sucks forever. Right. Like, this is just what we have. And I do think there are some other pitfalls with that as well, because it could be weaponized and not could. I see this a lot with kids. So if you have a child who, like, let's say a teenager who is actually experiencing rejection and they have ADHD, I have seen it, you know, well, that's your RSD. You know, it's possible that that can be weaponized against kids and adults. Like, I don't have to take your hurt feelings seriously because your feelings are just an indicator that you can't control yourself. They're not an indicator. They're not, couldn't possibly be a reflection that I hurt you or that that thing really hurt you. It's just this, you know, and I, I mean, I have some friends that have borderline personality disorder and they talk about that exact scenario with them. They're like, you know, I'm, and they're really healthy people, like really mature and healthy around their borderline. And they'll say like, the thing that sucks the most is like, 
really actually having someone do something shitty to you and like try to talk to your loved ones about it. And they either say or imply like, well, like, could this be the borderline? And you're like, no, like it actually was a really hurtful thing they did. And like, it's valid for me to be hurt. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's what happens when terms start out meaning something and then they get so blurry is that they circle all the way back around to the thing they were supposed to replace. So understanding BPD was supposed to be helpful and therapeutic so that we don't stigmatize folks that are struggling with that. Understanding RSD was supposed to help us get away from you're just too sensitive. But unfortunately, when we use it in this way, it becomes, oh, that's just your RSD. It becomes you're just too sensitive. And I think the other piece is distinguishing between I think the use of the word dysphoria in it is really hard for me. And that is the one as a clinician that I'm probably too much of a stickler for. I probably need to get over it. But I struggle because there's something, it's like when people talk about pathological demand avoidance, and I refer to it just as demand avoidance, because when we add pathological and when we add dysphoria, those words mean something. Dysphoria means I'm feeling not right based on something that is not necessarily acknowledged by everyone, right? That's a really imperfect definition of dysphoria. But really, it's just being highly, highly sensitive to and reactive to real or perceived rejection. But that's not a super fun descriptive term. It's like twice as many words. I think this article talked about the word dysphoria. It says dysphoria is the Greek word meaning unbearable. Its use emphasizes the severe physical and emotional pain suffered by people with RSD when they encounter real or perceived rejection, criticism, or teasing. The emotional intensity of RSD is described by my patients as a wound. The response is well beyond all proportion to the nature of the event that triggered it. And so that's where I struggle, right? Because who gets to judge whether it's out of proportion? And that's what that kind of what I was trying to capture. And that's a much more elegant way of saying it is that my reaction is out of proportion for what's happening. When we start going down that road for some of these symptoms, I think, and traits, we get into messy territory. Not only who gets to determine whether it's out of proportion, but also if you heard your name called 20,000 more times by the time you're 18, why would your fear of an anticipation of rejection be out of proportion? To me, that's a perfectly proportionate response, but you are highly sensitive. Yeah, like in proportion to what? In proportion to the thing that just happened or in proportion to your experience, your lifetime of experience about what that means about you and what that message is about you. You know, what's interesting about all of this is that, you know, at the beginning I asked, like, is there any research on this yet? And sometimes, like you said, well, all times, like the world of psychology moves faster than the science of psychology. And so, Like, you can't say, like, well, if there's no research, then it's not valid because, again, it moves faster. But one of the things that I think people don't always appreciate about research, it's not just this, like, well, we need a bunch of white men scientists to say it's real for it to be real. It's like when we do research, like, no person is just their diagnosis, right? And so if we were to say, well, let's get a bunch of people with ADHD together and like see how prevalent this description of this thing called RSD is. Well, that seems simple, but like when's the last time you met somebody that had ADHD and no trauma or no other diagnosis? So even if, you know, wow, 30% or 60% say they have this. Okay, but how do we know the RSD that they all have is stemming from the ADHD? Because 
Again, a lot of this sounds like stuff that comes up in bipolar. A lot of this stuff sounds like stuff that comes up in trauma. So you have to do so much research and so many different control groups and, you know, people that only have this one diagnosis. And then of them, like, what's their educational background? What's their emotional background? What's their race? What's their, right? Like, you have to do so much of that to make sure that the symptom you're looking at truly is only coming from this one disorder. And think about how impossible that is with how high the rates of comorbidity is between ADHD and other things. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And I think if we look through an intersectional lens too, it probably is going to look and feel and be conceptualized in very radically different ways behaviorally for a Black American teenager and a white 44-year-old psychologist lady, right? So my experience of that is going to be very different because I also haven't had to hide and shift and mask other parts of myself that other people had. So this is also where, to get a little nerdy for you, uh, you for a second, where I think I really see people not grabbing or going to the qualitative research. And if you if you don't haven't heard that term before, quantitative research is more when we're doing what we're talking about now. So we have control groups, we're trying to isolate variables, we're trying to look at, does this thing cause this thing? Qualitative research looks at storytelling and common factors and common experiences. It's a wonderful way to learn. It's, it's highly scientific, it's highly rigorous, and we don't we just don't talk about it, I think, enough in, in regular media. So I wonder, and this is me wondering because I haven't thought about it, I wonder if there is some, some data in more of the qualitative area. I'm going to write that down. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric and it even stays soft wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle, promo code STRUGGLE. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. I did do like a cursory Google search to see if I could find any 
you know, research data, the PubMed data, the things like that. But maybe there is stuff out there that I just haven't found. So I'll leave that obviously as an option. When you were talking about like, what could be the downside of over pathologizing the rejection response is that, like, I know for me, there were so many clinical interventions that went into both clinical interventions and just like personal work that went into getting to a place where I don't feel like my world is ending when I feel rejected. And my own experience, I think, was too far in the other direction where I was kind of made to feel as though like that is a personal failing in me. Like you're too sensitive and you're not tough enough and you need to get a grip, like get a grip. Now, luckily, I mean, that wasn't the solution. Like that's how they posed the problem is like you need to get a grip. But luckily I had access to resources where I could work on like, okay, this is trauma. Where is it coming from? How can I heal that trauma? How can I learn distress tolerance? How can I widen my window of tolerance? How can I hang on to myself in those moments? How can I work on some cognitive restructuring where I can talk to a friend and be like, okay, this is what I'm telling myself. And they can either go like, yeah, that just happened or like, no, that sounds like you, bud. And like, I'm so grateful that I was able to work on that experience so that I don't have to live that way every day. And I think back to your point is like, if that just gets classified as like, well, you know, that's just a thing and it will never go away. It's like, I don't want people to feel like shame about having it or that it's some sort of like character failing. But at the same time, like you don't want people to feel like they just have to live with this incredible pain. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's where I have concerns about some of these. And there's other terms too, but that we use for these diagnoses because they don't necessarily allow for the opportunity for growth. And we need that. Another thing we know about ADHD brains, in addition to the things that are kind of always going to be there, is that our brains do continue, well, everyone's brains continue to grow and change. But some of the development of that frontal lobes, lobe system is just delayed. So some of our treatment as ADHDers is life is continuing. Just like literally growing up. <laughs> yes. Keep going. It's going to take us longer to find these regulatory strategies. And so if you tell someone who's eight, this is something you have in terms of RSD, not ADHD. And that's it. There's nothing we can do. I wonder if there are opportunities to learn that we can survive some of these challenges and that you can reach out and have support people that you can check with your friends and they'll be honest with you. I wonder if we deprive them of that. I, I didn't have access to any of that. I had to learn that as an adult. Well, and I think most people that I've heard use the term RSD are using it in, I would literally say like 95% use it to describe, oh my God, I'm not broken. This is a part of my experience. This is why it's so painful. I'm not weak or stupid or any of these things. Like I just have a pretty unique neurology, whether that is always innate or whether that was environmentally shaped, like whatever it is, like this is a thing. This is why this is happening to me. Or maybe like this is why this is harder for me. 5% of the time, I hear it used to say, because this is harder for me, for reasons that are not my control, I don't have to work that hard to address the impact it has on others. And that is just a human thing. Like we all don't, you know, it's hard to look at yourself. It's hard to take accountability. And I think that like, you know, it takes a scalpel to really kind of draw that line between like I always like my example is always like I am sometimes late to things because of my ADHD. And what I learned was like the proper place for it's OK. It's just my ADHD. That's something I tell myself 
That's never something I tell the person being impacted by me being late. Like that's for me to not hate myself, to not feel shame. It's not for me, like that's to address my feelings of being upset at me. It's not to address your feelings of being upset at me. I definitely forgot what I was going to tell you. And I love that this is like a real world example of like some of the things that can happen when you have space to be authentic. What I was going to say is that also doesn't mean that we're not allowed to reach out for supports or ask for accommodations or let people know that we struggle with something. But I 100% agree with you that there is a balance point of what I tell myself. It's kind of like when we talk to kids about inside thoughts and outside thoughts and learning which or which can make profound differences, I think, for ourselves, but also our relationships so that others feel comfortable to say when we have impacted them. And like feeling bad about something is also nuanced. Like, I don't feel like, so for example, I was 30 minutes late to a really important podcast recording because when I read it, I read that C, you know, 9.30 CT, not 9.30 ET. So I had the time for whatever, I showed up 30 minutes late, everyone's calling me. So I don't hate myself for that. I don't think that I'm a bad person. I know that has nothing to do with me being irresponsible. I still feel bad that it impacted the people who were waiting for me and their day, like their day also matters. And so like, I think that that's the other like fine point in there is like, I know that's due to my disability. And I sometimes will communicate that to people, not because I want them to change their feelings of aggravation, but because I want them to know that I did not intend for them. I don't think I'm better than you. I know your day is important. And sometimes that's part of the wound of someone being inconsiderate in your mind is like they think that I don't matter. And I want you to know, like, I do think you matter. I do think your time is as important as mine. That's why I want you to know that this was a disability-related, you know, flub, not just me being entitled. And I think that it, it takes a lot of nuance to communicate that in a way that says, I want you to know that I do care and I'm sorry, and not you don't get to have feelings about this and I don't have to address this. I think even this particular part of our discussion really illuminates why talking about RSD is so hard because all of these different facets of the nuance and understanding. And I think what what always kind of brings it home for me is that it, it, for this particular experience, I don't know that we've quite gotten it yet. I don't know that we've quite nailed it. What is this thing? How is it you know, happening conceptually? Because it's so hard to talk about. There's all of these facets. Do you find that that's particularly hard when it comes to any symptom that primarily expresses itself interpersonally? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, like being late is kind of interpersonally, but I mean, like, you know, there's this RSD, but then with borderline personality disorder, there's this, you know, maybe push and pull or being mean or or feeling, you know, what people would say is being dramatic. Somebody that maybe has PTSD and that is showing up as anger, like, you know what I mean? Like things that emotionally come into play interpersonally. Like, I wonder if that's why it's so hard. I agree 100%. I think that's how we arrive at the difficulty when we talk about things like weaponized incompetence and why that's so hard to talk about is because it's just this overlay. Anytime you have an exchange of communication in some way, it gets really hard. And I guess that's where a part of me always gets hesitant to label something, boom, that, oh, that's RSD. Because I think I know from my work and, and also my personal life, just because I'm so different than a lot of the people that I'm in relation to, that it's just not that simple. As soon as we add the dynamics of someone else, everything gets murky and we have to consider all of it. I think that's also what makes 
the large scale communication about these topics so difficult, just like personally as a content creator, as an author, because if I'm interacting with someone specifically, like I can ask enough questions to understand the nuances and then give a piece of insight or or a statement or whatever. But what usually happens when I'm making content about something like, let's say I make it about RSD and, you know, you'll have this person or this huge group of people that will be like, you know, I'm a good person and I, I try so hard to love the people well and I feel so deeply ashamed that I can't live up to the neurotypical standards and the people around me are always telling me that, you know, I'm not good enough because I can't do this and thinking that my inability to regulate emotionally like everybody else is due to me being bratty or not caring. And it's like, that's so painful. And so you want to talk to that about like, this is not a moral failing. This is this, this is a disability. Da, da, da. But for every group of people in that bucket, you have a group of people in a bucket going, yeah, like my husband or my partner or my friend or my parent was a horrible fucking person and either abused me or mistreated me or constantly hurt me in some way and refused to take accountability because they had fill in the blank of whatever disability it is. And it makes it difficult to talk in general terms about the two competing truths of like disability is not a moral failing and it's not an excuse to mistreat people. Yeah, I think it's one of... And that's an easy thing to say out loud. But if you go any further than that, you know, there's no other sentence you could say except for that one before you feel like the people who were married to an abuser that had a disability are being discounted or the people that were always demonized for having this disability feel discounted. And it makes it a really weird, hard line to walk. It does. And I think the most common response that I get when I also make content like that or have discussions like that is, well, then how do I know the difference? And the fact that there is no answer for that, how do I know if I have RSD? How do I know if I have sensory dysfunction due to this because we're all actual like human blobs and we have all of this stuff going on. It's incredibly hard to give that answer, especially in these kind of short sound bitey ways. And I think when you're someone, so say you're in my position, it's so easy to talk about the nuance when you're someone who is consuming that content because they are in daily pain. It is very hard to hear. I think I don't know. I don't know. You would have to look at the entirety of your relationship. You would have to compare it to this. So I understand the frustration and I wish it was simpler than it is. Yeah. Well, Leslie, we are at time and I can't tell you how great of a conversation this is. It's always a great conversation with all of the pre-planning that I've been doing. It tickles me pink to have somebody that I can schedule a podcast episode with and not even tell them what the topic's going to be. I myself thought of the topic about 15 minutes before I logged on because I was like, wait, have we not talked about a topic? But this has been great. You want to tell people where they can find you if they want to hear some of your sound bits, wisdom of sound bits, sound bits of wisdom? Yep. I don't know about the wisdom, but I've got lots of sound bits. Right now, I'm just on the TikTok at Leslie Saidi. So it's L-E-S-L-E-Y-P-S-Y-D. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, 
a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.